hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. This week, I'm joined by composer Sarah Quartel. Sarah is a Canadian composer and educator known for her fresh and exciting approach to choral music. She studied at the University of Western Ontario and currently lives in London, Ontario. Her works are performed by ensembles around the world, and she has been commissioned by groups, including the American Choral Directors Association, the National Children's Chorus of the United States, and New Dublin Voices. Sarah's music is exclusively published by Oxford University Press. Sarah Quartel, welcome to Movable Dough. Thanks so much, Steve. So I'd like to start today with a quote that I found on your website. It says, deeply inspired by the life-changing relationships that can occur while making choral music, Sarah writes in a way that connects singer to singer, ensemble to conductor, and performer to audience. So how would you describe your process in trying to forge these connections? Yeah, and those kinds of connections have been ones that I've, I've experienced firsthand. Because first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a choral singer myself. I grew up singing in choirs. I grew up, you know, making friends with the people that sat beside me. I still remember that person in my first, you know, really good, good children's choir. Amy sat right beside me. And those, <laughs> those connections were just so um, valuable and so present in any choral music making experience I've, I've had. And so in, in now kind of being on the other side of the choral world, not, not a choral singer, not a, not a choral director really anymore, but the composer, I, I know that those connections are real and that they can be facilitated through choral music. And so when I'm, I'm writing, I am picking um, lyric topics that I think will, will engage singers and help them connect with each other, connect with their director. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the music that um, I've been putting it recently has been sort of chorister inspired too. a lot of my mm. recent commissions. So um, when I, when I feel like a chorister can really see themselves in the music, it, it helps the music mean more and helps you, you reach out to, to uh, your audience in a, in a new way. That's awesome. So you mentioned your early days as a choral singer. So let's, let's go back to your beginnings. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up here in London, Ontario, and although I have lived many, many other places in my life, you know, I started here and I've, I've come back here now to raise my family, but I, I grew up in a very um, musical family, you know, my dad was a church organist, he had a harp oh, wow. support in the basement that he built, you know, so having lots of, of exceptional quality music around me was just a part of a part of life. And so I gravitated towards choirs pretty young. 
um, I was put as a second soprano in, in my, my children's choir. I always say, born a second soprano, die a second soprano. There's something about <laughs> being that meaty middle in a treble ensemble um, that just still speaks to me today. I just love that being that inner part. So, so choral music was something that I, I had a lot of it in my ear growing up and I got to be a part of it from a very young age. So it is, it is something that I've always loved and something I, yeah, I've, I've decided to focus my career on. Would you say that the friends you were growing up with were musical as well? Were they all in choir with you or? Yeah, yeah. When I think of my friend circle now, I mean, I met this person in choir. I met this person because we took piano. I met this person because we went to university for music together. And the friendships that have stuck have been friends that I made music with over mm -hmm. the years. And we developed our voices together over the years. And uh they, they inspired me then and they, they inspire me now. So when you were a teenager, what sort of music were you listening to? What was oh, inspiring you? Yeah, I was a teenager in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I mean, Tori Amos was my hugest. Oh, I, like, I just I just loved her. And, you know, one surprising influence that people sometimes when I tell them, it's like, really? I was at Nine Inch Nails. I was a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. I remain a huge Trent Reznor fan. And <laughs> something about the uh, musical language that both Trent Reznor and Torrey is used particularly in the late 90s, a good, like, flat six, flat seven, one. I love that. They used a lot of that. And that's a that's a sort of a, a harmonic language that's made its way into my writing today. Even. Yeah. You're still seeing that influence in, in what you're doing Tao, and uh, doing today. Yeah. I, I think, you know, being a, being a teenager who just, you know, looked for emotional outlets in music, everything I, I listened to at that time, everything I pulled in, it, it sticks, you know, the music that is most influential in your, in your, your toughest times, your best times, it sticks no matter what it is, when it yeah. is. And uh, yeah, that, that stuck. That's awesome. <laughs> so I read somewhere that your, that one of your early attempts at writing music was making up harmonies to the funny sound your washing machine made. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it must have been maybe three or four. It's my earliest memory of kind of being creative with, with the building blocks of music, melody, and, and rhythm. And my mom had this crazy old washing machine that would play this rhythmic hum. And so I'd sing along in harmony with the washing machine to try and just, just I guess I was just having fun. But, yeah. you know, when I think of when did I actually think I was composing? Oh, not until years afterwards, obviously, because I've always been... I've always sort of thought that that music for me was not something that somebody else did on a page that I replicated. It was something that was living. It was something mm. that was changing and that music was not a fixed thing. Music was something that I could always be creating with. And I guess it started singing along with that, <laughs> that old washing machine. <laughs> so as a teenager influenced by Tori Amos, I heard that you also went through a, a singer songwriter phase before you sort of made your way back to choral music so yeah. yeah tell me tell me about that path yeah I was still singing in choirs as a teenager and loving every moment of it but I you know looking for a, a way to create um I, I did the singer-songwriter thing and write for my wrote for myself on the piano and you know played my high school cabaret night and coffee houses and core and uh you know folk festivals in and around town until i was struck by like crazy performance anxiety at, at age 18 and mm. that was like going into university 
And uh, I, I had, I kind of came to a crossroads of I want to keep creating, I want to write music, I want to express myself, but this whole goal of, of being a, you know, traveling performer, I don't think is for me. So what direction will I take my writing in? And it was naturally, it just went to choral music because I, I'd started to hear more harmonies than I could produce myself, obviously, you know, me and, me and my piano and, and play piano accompaniments. I had started to hear piano accompaniments harder than I could I had the, the piano skill to, to play. And so the, the jump from, you know, satisfying melodies and harmonies as a singer songwriter into putting that into choral music was just, it was just natural. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned that you, you live in London, Ontario now, and you said you moved back here to, to raise your family since yeah. so I know you have at least one little one at home, right? Yes, I have one little one at home. Yeah. Four. Yeah. So, how do you find time to compose? What do you find is the is the best time to do it for you? <laughs> well, my phone definitely travels around the house with me. So if I'm if I get a great idea for a hook, I'm like, okay, hold on, kiddo, I'm just going to sing this into my phone. <laughs> half of my comp notes have him like chitter chattering in the background or something like that. But um, I've had to really discipline myself to to think of composing as a nine to five, mm-hmm. and 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 set aside blocks in the day where you know child care is taken care of and all that stuff which can be be tough when it's art <laughs> that you're trying to create <laughs> you, you pencil in art time but um i've i've found a way to do that sometimes i mean there are some early mornings while the rest of the house is quiet and i've tiptoed off to my studio to, to try and work on something but i've been very fortunate that um I can, I, I have that nine to five attitude that, that it is work and I can sit down and, and get it done when I have the time. Yeah. That's good. So about how long does it take you to, to work out a piece in general? Like if you're if looking at say a, a three to five minute piece, how long would that take you to knock out? I give myself four weeks from start to finish because I know there's going to be a text search in there. I know there's going to be two Malton. Is this the right direction? I'm taking this piece. <laughs> and then there are going to be days when somebody's got a cold in the house and you, you, you don't get that nine to five sort of block that you've yeah. been for. So I set out uh, four or five weeks in my calendar for each three to five minute piece, um, knowing that sometimes it just kind of comes out quickly and, and, and other times I need that full block. Awesome. Well, I, I wanted to know about your your work during the pandemic. You know, we've, we've been through this two-year period. We're sort of coming out the other side now. Uh, so what's been the most difficult part of the pandemic for you in your career? I think, you know, the most difficult part has been just not knowing what's next, when is is next. That, that I had mm-hmm. so many premieres delayed and I knew they would happen, but to have written a piece of music so excited that you've created this thing and excited to be partnering with a choir knowing that it's going to get its first performance and then have to wait I think one of mine it's not happening until this spring it's been two years delayed that's been been really tough because being a composer can sometimes be a lonely thing creating your own space you send it Mm -hmm. out to the choir the conductor and and because the majority of my commissions are for for choirs out of town you know i don't necessarily interact with the choir in person or or hear the premiere so um knowing that a piece is still on the shelf for a while has has been been yeah probably the most challenging part of this pandemic for me well what sort of lessons are you bringing with you out of the pandemic as we 
as we come out the other side? Yeah, connection. I mean, you know, I mentioned, you know, being a composer in this studio can be lonely because you're by yourself, but I have connected with so many choirs and directors over the past two years via Zoom, online, and all these tools. And it's really reminded me of that connection piece that, that, that you started with, that, you know, that choral music making is a collective activity. And I miss being a part of the, the collectiveness <laughs> of it. And uh, I'm, I'm starting to look at doing more in-person gigs in the future because just, just being a part, being in that room with the choral buzz there's, that's what got me into this, this yeah. business. And uh, that's, that's the heart of it for me. Yeah. Well, way to bring it full circle back to the connection. That was, there we go. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my listeners know uh, that I teach middle school choir. Uh, I asked my students what they would ask a composer if they had a chance. Would you mind answering one of their questions? Absolutely. Okay. So I was intrigued with the way this student phrased her question. Uh, Sayla asked this, what gives you the courage to be a composer? Oh, Salem, my dear. Well, I think, you know, when I first started out, I didn't really need courage because I was doing this for me. You were writing, you know, write music for yourself as a beginning composer. You're expressing yourself. You're, you're doing this because you really like it and it's fun and it's for your friends. I think as I've continued, and this has become my job, I've, I've needed courage to continue because mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a big pond, little fish, big pond. And, and every day, you know, you wonder, oh, is this, was the last one I wrote the last good one I'm going to come up with, you know, where's the muse going to go? <laughs> Please don't go muse, you know? Um, but the courage has come from practice and work. You know, I've talked to so many people in the past couple of years who just, you know, they want me to demystify being a composer because I know when I was a kid growing up, you see composers as these struck by lightning, everything is magic and it just comes to them and it's brilliance. But it is so much work. It is honing your craft. It is taking theory for years and years. It is practice. And, and I think what gives me courage is knowing that I work hard. And if at the end of the day, I can be satisfied with what I write if I like it then yeah there's courage courage to continue in that that's a beautiful answer I'll let Selah know oh. that answer uh so I've got one more question for you before we take a quick break here when you're not musicking what do you like to do what's your hobby <laughs> gardening I love gardening oh yeah um and I also love preserving <laughs> you know like jam, uh -huh. <laughs> like literal preserving salsa. Yeah. My grandmother had this huge uh, cold cellar in her house. She owned a funeral home. She lived in the funeral home with my grandfather. And so you'd go down, she'd say, go get a jar of peaches. And you'd have to go through the bowels of this cavernous <laughs> house, past the casket room and get a jar of peaches. So she, she taught me all she knew about preserving. And that's a uh, that's my hobby. You'll find a pantry full of, full of salsa and jam in my house. Oh, I love, I love preserving. Yeah. We do lots of preserving late summer, early fall lead, gets us through the winter for sure. Nice. Same here. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Sarah's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Sarah Cortell. 
We're going to start today with the bird's lullaby for SSAA Acapella Choir. You know, normally when we think of lullabies, we think of much slower melodies that help lull our babies to sleep. But the bird's lullaby could be described as much more playful, uh, a bouncy, lilting melody accompanied by choral scatting, for lack of a better term. Uh, tell us about writing this piece and why you chose to approach, approach the text this way. Yeah, well, this piece started out as a commission, and I, I got an email one spring from a gentleman named Andrew in England who wanted to commission a piece for his wife as a gift for her oh, choir. Sweet. I'm like, what a nice gift, hey? You know, like a, a commissioned choral piece. Um, and we were in touch for a while until the trail kind of dropped off, and and I didn't hear from him for a while. So I thought, oh, maybe he's, he's decided to go with another composer. But then I found out that he passed away quite suddenly. Oh, my. Um, so, but his wife found out that he had planned this gift and she was in touch with me and she said, you know what, let's go ahead with this and it will be his last, his last gift to me, she said. So she wanted something that was bright and playful and cheerful, not sad or dark because their relationship had been bright and cheerful and happy. And so I came up, came across this text, The Bird Lullaby, Bird's Lullaby by E. Pauline Johnson. Um, Johnson, um, Canadian poet, um, mom was British, dad was Mohawk, and she traveled Canada at the turn of the century, 1900s, you know, reading her poetry, what a progressive and amazing thing for a woman at that time to be doing. And she, she her, her poetry, a lot of her works um, have beautiful images of, of landscapes and nature. And so I found the bird's lullaby, this playful, playful text and knowing that the commissioner wanted something in that sort of spirit, I thought it was uh, the right match. That's beautiful. What did she think of it after you presented it to her? She, she loved it. I met her in person not long after I handed it in and she saw me from across the room and started singing the opening little scat of the little birds <laughs> and just came running towards me with her arms out singing at me. It was the most, it was just a precious moment. Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, we're going to take a moment here. We're going to listen to the bird's lullaby.
Our second piece today is a Mobile Alleluia for SSATB Acapella Choir or SATB and Children's Chorus. So many composers have written their own Alleluias. Uh, I'd love to know why you wrote yours and what you were trying to say with your piece. Yeah, so this was a commission for the choral uh, program that that raised me. I sang with mm. the Amabile Choirs of London, Ontario growing up. My dad was one of the choir managers. My sister sang in it, you know, and it was it was the choral program that, that gave me my wings. And I was a choral composer. And so when I was asked um, to conduct their, their big Amabile Festival um, in February of 2020, I wrote this piece for them as sort of a signature alleluia for the organization that that, that got me started uh, as, a, as a choral musician. Um, and so it is, you know, um, alleluia being a, a sacred word, but it does have sort of that secular ability to it and that alleluia is the only word in the text and it's just a bright and, and, and bubbly and exciting uh, kind, of, kind of piece that could be done easily yeah, by mass choir um, with two soprano parts or because there were lots of kids there too, there's an optional kids choir, choir part to be, be in the piece as well. So were you very conscious about trying to keep the melody accessible for younger singers in this case? Yeah, I wanted to make sure that if you are programming this piece for a multi-age uh, group or a mass choir setting, that every singer could have a, a part that was satisfying and appropriate for, for their, their, their technique level. Yeah. Oh, that's great. All right, well, we're going to listen here to Amabile Alleluia. Next, we're going to turn to Peace. This is for SATB Choir and Piano. 
And this piece was premiered at a concert at the end of 2021 in a program celebrating works from women composers, including Jocelyn Hagen, who we've had on this program before. Uh, could you tell us about this commission and what it meant being included in this special program? Yeah, it was it was a really special commission for me. It was uh, for Cantorive, Denver, Colorado, Joel Rinsma, conductor, and um, Joel com commissioned this piece in honor of uh, a beloved aunt who had recently passed away. Mm. Um, the text, peace flows into me as the tide to the pool by the shore. It is mine forevermore. It ebbs not back like the sea. Beautiful uh, imagery. And, and the, the, the great connection in this was that, that uh, the commissioner's aunt lived in Kauai, in Hawaii. And I had just come out of two years of living um, just outside of Honolulu in Hawaii mm. while my husband was working at Pearl Harbor on a, on a work exchange. So um, the Hawaiian uh, tides and, and, and the waves were something I had grown to, to love uh, while, while living there. And, I, and the commissioner's aunt you know, had a similar love for, for the ocean and this part of the world. And so that was the connection in writing that. Um, but the text, you know, I wrote this piece in spring of 2021, you know, kind of oh, how many heights in the pandemic have we had? I don't know if that was one, <laughs> but there's just been so many. But I guess that was a height for me in being indoors and and family struggling with illness. And to, to set this text um, was was really a, a healing sort of thing for me. So this is a piece that, that continues to mean a lot to me today. All right, well, we're going to listen to a performance here uh, by Cantorai of mm -hmm. Peace. Thank you. 
All right. And our last piece today is the piece that actually introduced me to your music, uh, which is Sing My Child for SATB and Hand Drum. Uh, this is such a joyful piece. Uh, I understand you wrote the words for this piece as well. Uh, was there something going on in your life that inspired this text? Yeah, so I, I was a, a, an educator myself for quite a few years. I was actually an elementary school music teacher. And um, I, loved, I loved those kids so much. I, I just adored my time in, in music education. And so when I was commissioned to write this piece, I was trying to think of um, all of these lovely little people in my life who had inspired me and sort of um, helped me become um, a, a, a composer who understands kids' voices. Because when you work with kids, as, as you do, you know good music, what works, what doesn't, what they need, what they can handle the caliber of music that kids when when trusted with they can dig in and so I was really thinking about these kids at that time and, and what my parting message would have been for them as I was leaving teaching and sort of transitioning into being a full-time composer and I wanted to tell them to sing I wanted to tell them to dance and, and laugh and be joyful and that's where this text uh, came from and and you know it's, it's funny maybe, you know, we can all think of a piece that we knew when we were younger and then you come back to it years later and suddenly it means something different to you. This, this piece has, has, has morphed for me too, because mm. it started out as, you know, good wishes for younger people in my life, little people in my life. But in talking to a high school group last, last week online about this piece, I said to them, you know, we can sing this for other people in our lives. We can also sing this for ourselves. We've all needed out of coming out of this this last two years, the reminder to sing, the reminder to dance, the reminder that yes, we ourselves deserve this. And we, we wouldn't hesitate to tell a little person in our lives to take care of themselves and to love themselves. But when we say it to ourselves as well, um, you know, sometimes we need to hear that too. That's great. Do you find it's any different working with a text that you wrote versus a text that you found somewhere else? Absolutely. My, my compositional process is completely different. If I'm using an existing text, I memorize the poem, I find uh, the poet's structure that they set out to create, and then I look for the musical structure that I would like to uh, bring out of the poem. Um, and then I go from there. When I'm working with lyrics I wrote myself, I kind of write in tandem. Is that a little bit of text, a little bit of music, a little bit of text, a little bit of music till I have my hook, till I have my sort of seed that I want to grow this piece out of and then I leave the music I flesh out the text and then I, I finish all the music so it's a different process one I don't use much anymore um, because the, I just love working with other people's poetry I find it brings more out of me musically than I than I would if I, I continue to set my own lyrics no that's great all right well we are going to listen now to sing my child Sing my 
Well, Sarah, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Uh, I just finished learning how to write for a new instrument. Oh, yeah. Organ. Yes. My dad was an organist, but I've kind of shied away from the instrument for a while. So I've just finished one setting and I'm just about to start uh, another setting with uh, for a treble choir and organ. And then in in coming uh, months, I have some new projects lined up some composer in residence gigs down in the states so i'm looking forward to being in the u.s a little bit more in the next year or so and uh, continuing this this idea of collaborating and and connecting with people in person as well that's awesome well i hope our paths cross at some point as well Me too. Yeah. uh so where can my listeners learn more about you what's your website social media all that sort of stuff yeah, uh, sarahcortell.com. You can find me there. Um, I'm exclusively published with Oxford University Press, and they have some amazing resources for listening to uh, choral scores and viewing uh, choral scores online. So you can check out Oxford University Press and find me there, as well as my, uh, my professional page on Facebook. Awesome. Well, hey, listeners out there, make sure that you also visit the Movable Dough website, which is at sdcompose.com slash movable dough. Uh, you can join us on Facebook at the Movable Dough listeners group. And also follow us on Instagram, Movable Dough Podcast. There's an underscore between each of those words. But if you just look up Movable Dough Podcast, you'll find us. Well, Sarah Cortell, it has been a joy talking to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thanks so much, Steve. My guest today was composer Sarah Cortell. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>